you would turn to the book of James and let's uh, continue in our study of James's letter. Just as a reminder, James into chapter 1 with instruction to care for those in need. In fact, he says that compassion for people is the evidence of our faith. We cannot claim to follow Christ if we do not care for those in need. He talks about what true and undefiled religion looks like. And he explains that true and undefiled religion is not a religious ceremony. It's in humble service with the words we speak, with what we do with our hands and our teachable hearts. Paul describes it as words spoken according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Considering the, the needs of others is more important than our own. I've given you a great example this morning, if you haven't had a chance to read it, in the back of the bulletin. Jake Hodge, young Jake Hodge, has shown us what it looks like to care for others expecting nothing in return. And what Jake has done is a perfect example of what James has been talking about. It's learning to love others out of the overflow of God's love for us. To love as we've been loved, to forgive as we've been forgiven. So that what fills our heart then spills out into our relationships with other people. Because how we relate to others is ultimately a reflection of how we relate to God. When we're humble before God, we inevitably have compassion for people. But when pride rules our heart, we use other people for selfish gain. We leverage relationships for something that we're not receiving in our relationship with Christ. How we relate to others is a reflection of how we relate to God. Let's see how James explains that in our passage this morning, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, my brethren, so he's talking to his brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are now aliens outside of Jerusalem, He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. I believe what what James is about to speak to here is a real issue in the early church. This is not a potential scenario. It is a relevant problem. And what he will do, as we will see, is give great detail to this issue in the early church. And it's a warning. It's a warning that applies to us today not to mix faith with favoritism, because our relationship with people is a part of our witness for Christ. James says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. In other words, you cannot glorify God and glorify people at the same time. You will either glorify people and dishonor God, Or you will glorify God and serve other people. The word for personal favoritism in the original language is a very interesting word. It literally means to receive the face. That's what it means. To receive the face. It's this idea of judging someone based on outward appearance. On what you see. And James explains what that looks like in this church that he is speaking to. Look at verse 2. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a a poor man in dirty clothes, 
And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. I, again, believe this is a real situation in the early church. And James kind of paints this picture of what's taking place. There are two men that enter into a church or a gathering of Christians. The first is someone who has an appearance of success. It describes him as wearing nice clothes and a gold ring. Everything about him says this is someone you want to meet. And the reason you do is because there are personal benefits to knowing a person like this, a person of success and accomplishment. The other person is just the opposite. Their clothes are dirty. They might even have a slight odor to them. They may have just gotten off the job if they even have a job. But unlike the first person, they don't fit in. And here's the key. They know it. They just want to slide to the background to to go behind the scenes. The first person is dressed to draw your attention. And it works. Because we see in this passage that the church responds by giving the one who is more socially acceptable a place of honor. But they relegate the poor man to essentially sit on the floor. Both men, I believe, received exactly what they expected. The rich man received honor. That's what he anticipated. (laughs) The poor man is ignored. That's what he expected as well. But here's the problem. We can only judge other people based on outward appearance. Receiving the face. Seeing what's on the outside and making a judgment about what's on the inside. And it just doesn't work that way. And James explains that beginning in verse 4. He says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? This is a strong verse because in this verse, what James is saying here is that when we make just distinctions, it's the very same thing as passing judgment. Look at it again. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and as a result become judges with evil motives? A judgment based on what you believe they deserve, based on what you can see on the outside. You have assumed a right that belongs to God by passing judgment on another person, but with evil motives. Our judgment is tainted with evil motives. And I believe what that means here. I believe those evil motives are based on the fact that we give preference to people based on their benefit to us. We disregard relationships where there is no personal gain. We judge people based on their benefit to us. And we give no regard to relationships that have no benefit to us. We give special attention to people who have something to offer. And we judge others who don't appear to have that same thing with contempt. Maybe a better way to explain this would just to say simply, I like you (laughs) as long as it's good for me. That's the heart that James is speaking to here. I like you as long as it's good for me. Look at how he continues in verse 5. Listen. My beloved brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
do, does, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? See, what James is doing here is explaining how our selfish motives are in direct contrast. It's the very opposite of God's example of grace towards us. God did not choose us because of some benefit to him. He is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, completely sufficient within the undivided fellowship of the Trinity. He extended grace to us, not because of some benefit to him, but because it was good for us. God always seeks our highest good. There's always a motivation of something that's a benefit to us, even at great cost to him. James highlights the poor of this world who happen to know this truth the best. Which, by the way, doesn't mean rich people can't get into heaven, but it is clear in Scripture that it's a whole lot harder for them to get there. And James explains why, even in this passage. More often than not, those who have the least understand their spiritual needs the most. Those who have the most understand those same needs the least. If you remember when Jesus began the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, the very first one that he said was, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When Matthew records it, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's essentially trying to help us understand that a lot of times our external circumstances say something about what's inside our heart. And many times those of humble circumstances have a humble heart. And it's those who understand their need that more often turn to God to resolve that need. (laughs) You don't need a Savior. You don't cry out to Him. But when you do, you turn to God because He's all you have. Jesus says, woe to the rich in this world, for they have received their comfort. It's a, it's a past tense. It's a current reality. Those who are, are self-sufficient have a tendency to, to overlook their need for God. Why? Because they're doing just fine on their own. It's kind of an add-on to something that's already pretty good on, on itself. But God promises salvation. Not to those who have it all together but those who cry out in desperate need. It takes those who are poor in spirit and makes them rich in faith. It elevates people beyond their social standing. The poor are made rich, he says. They become heirs to the kingdom. Their inheritance is secure. Why? Because it's based on a promise of God. The judgment of God is altogether different (laughs) than our means of how we judge other people based on outward appearance. See, God looks at the heart. We discriminate, but God unites. We make labels, put people in categories. God removes them. I mean, what does the Scripture say? There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, Slave nor free. Why? Because we are all one in Christ Jesus. He removes the labels. And very often, we categorize people and put them, put the labels on them. Look at what he says in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? Do they not blaspheme the the fair name by which you have been called? Remember, James is writing to to Jewish Christians who are in exiles outside of Jerusalem. They are in foreign territory. They live in a land that is controlled by wealthy people. Much of the land of that area where they now live is controlled by the elite. And so very likely, the people that they are showing favor to is in, in hopes that they will be shown favor from. Because they are working on their land in order to live on their land, and whatever they can do to be in good standing is their goal. In the end, essentially what they're doing is they're trusting in the provision of other people more than they're trusting in the provision of God. But James says, you know, that's kind of like paying respect to your executioner. (laughs) These are people who are known to dishonor, to exploit, and ultimately to blaspheme. The wealthier elite are the ones who are kind as long as you know your place. They're good to you as long as you're a benefit to them. But as soon as that changes and you step out of line or in some way don't function like they think you should, then they'll take you to court and they'll use their influence towards their benefit. And James is saying, you know that because it's happened to many of you. But most importantly, you are honoring the ones who blaspheme me. And I believe that blaspheme, what he means by that, or they blaspheme God because they've rejected Jesus as the Savior. They don't need him because they're doing just fine on their own. They have not submitted to his rule in their life. And James is saying, why would you show favoritism to an unjust master when you are a child of the king? Why would you show favoritism to the wealthy elite as if they have something to offer to you that doesn't come with being rightly related to God and the riches of his blessing? You know, James already told us uh, earlier, every good thing and every perfect gift is from the Father of lights given to those who are children of God. So if you have all of those things given to you, then why do you try to leverage those relationships for something more? Because when you do, you discredit the gospel. Leveraging relationships for selfish gain denies the blessing of being rightly related to God. Our relationships with people are a part of our witness for Christ. Look at how he continues in verse 8. If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of the whole thing. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit a murder. Do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a tr- transgressor of the law. Our relationship with God ultimately determines our rule for life. 
as a child of God, we now operate according to what James calls in this passage the royal law. I believe he describes it as the royal law because it is a law that is determined by who rules your heart. And if Christ reigns in your heart, then you want to follow what he has to say. That becomes the royal law by which you now live by. I think it's very possible that the passage that James quotes here is something that he heard from the very mouth of Jesus himself. You remember when the lawyer came to Jesus and asked him the question, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, well, there's actually two. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he said, the second one's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two laws, or all the law of the prophets and everything that exists under the law of God, fulfilled in these two commandments. In other words, our relationship with people is a reflection of our relationship with God. Showing partiality is a sin because it contradicts the very words of God. Any form of favoritism is an offense to God. Whether that's in the form of racism, whether it's political, social, religious, Apparently, our culture is not all that different than the culture of the early church because they were just as prone to overlooking the sin of discrimination as I believe we are in the church today. Leveraging relationships for selfish gain based on outward appearance. The clothes they wear. The color of their skin. Their influence in society. But James is calling us, he's he's calling them and he's calling us to live to a completely different paradigm. And look at how how he explains it beginning in, in verse 12. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We should love others according to the example of God's love for us. James describes it here, as he did back in chapter 1, as the law of liberty. It is a law that brings freedom. Because God did not judge us based on what we deserve. He did not choose us because of something that he needed from us that he didn't already possess on his own. His love always seeks our highest good, even at great cost to himself. Jesus Christ gave his life so that we could be free. He took our punishment so that we could experience his love. Therefore, we should show mercy in the same way that Mercy has been shown to us. We should give grace in the same way that grace has been lavished upon us. Jesus said, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. By your own standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Which is why I believe James can say here, for those who are merciless, you will be shown no mercy. 
For mercy triumphs over judgment, and no one should know that better than those who are rightly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we know that divine mercy has triumphed over divine judgment. God has given us the opposite of what we deserve. We sang about it this morning. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. And that mercy is new every single morning. We should relate to others out of the overflow of what we receive from Christ. James is addressing a real issue in the early church, and I believe it is equally as relevant to us in the church today. It's so easy to to let the influence of our culture determine how we relate to other people. We see that in our own history in our not-too-distant past, in the American history, we allowed the social norm of slavery to become acceptable inside the church. And we even tried to dress it up in religious words by saying, well, it's better for them because then we can share the gospel. No. The sin of discrimination is always, always, always an offense to God. But that may seem more clear to us in some of the more subtle ways that I think we show favoritism in the church today, I think it's seen when Christian communities segregate their services based on traditional and contemporary. Or when we relegate our ministries to certain demographics of age and marital status. Or when we make judgments on people based on their choices, whether it's public schools or private schools or home schools. James makes it clear. We should not relate to people according to the pattern of the world. The community within the church should look very different than what we see happening in the world around us. The world may be filled with discrimination, and it is. But the church should be filled with unity. The world seeks retribution for what is wrong. We've talked about how there is so much hate speech in our world today that as soon as somebody does something that you don't like or doesn't line up with your views, then you are free to say whatever you want to that person. And that's dead wrong. Instead of seeking retribution, we should find ways to to show forgiveness, to extend grace according to the need in that moment. A self-sacrificing love. A love that always seeks the highest good of another person. So that what fills our heart then flows out into our relationships with other people. Just like Jake Hodge. (laughs) Giving to others, expecting absolutely nothing in return. So here's at least one way you might consider applying this passage over the next week or so. And I want you to think about this. And what I want you to do is take an inventory, okay? Take an inventory of your relationships. Your marriage relationship, your family relationship, your friendships, your relationship with your neighbors, your relationship with your coworkers. I want you to take an inventory and consider examples in each of those categories. And as you think about each one, I want you to consider how you have in some way contributed to their good. As you think about that relationship, 
consider how you in some way have contributed to their good. What sacrifices have you made to make their life better? And be honest. As you look at those relationships, are you primarily a taker or are you a giver? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, by the time we do that inventory, there will be places for all of us where we are taking a lot and maybe need to give a little bit more. Instead of leveraging for selfish gain, sacrificing for their good. That would be a perfect way to apply this passage in the coming weeks. Another way I want to share with you and give for your consideration is based on a book that Terry and I have been listening to called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Practicing Radical Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. It's written by a woman by the name of Rosario Butterfield, who's a former lesbian who is now a very faithful follower of Christ. And to be honest with you, it's messing up our world a little bit. Because it's revealing ways that we could grow in how we love one another. Let me give you a quote that she uh, gave in regards to this book. And listen to what she says. She says, Hospitality is meeting the stranger and welcoming that stranger to become a neighbor. And then knowing that neighbor well enough that if by God's power and he allows for this, that neighbor becomes a part of the family of God through repentance and belief has absolutely nothing to do with entertainment. She says, entertainment is about impressing people and keeping them at an arm's length. Hospitality is about opening up your heart and your home just as you are and being willing to invite Jesus into the conversation, not to stop the conversation, but to deepen it. So let me give you one more application for the passage this week. Let me encourage you over the next month, to invite a stranger into your home. Okay? Write it down. Over the next month, invite a stranger into your home. And now, when I say stranger, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go find some complete stranger off the street because the fact of the matter is, you can look across this room and there may be people who have a familiar face, but you know nothing else about them. And so maybe that's the stranger you need to invite into your home. I'm convinced personally that one of the best ways to defeat the sin of favoritism is to show hospitality to the stranger. So that the more we invite people into our home, the more we relate to people who may not be just like us, the more we can appreciate the diversity in which God has created us in His image for His glory. So over the next month, invite a stranger into your home. And let the love of Christ that fills your heart flow out into your relationships with other people. Because how we relate to people is part of our witness for Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the very practical truth of your word as you deal with very real situations in your church that apply throughout the generations, including ours. I feel certain that there is nothing that was mentioned in our passage this morning that does not apply to us. 
There are ways that each of us can grow. Places in relationships that we have, whether that's our marriage, whether that's our family, our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, that we could grow in ways that we give to them for their own good. Sacrificing ourselves in ways that blesses them. So Lord, help us to be honest as we take an inventory and consider ways that we can be more of a giver and less of a taker. Lord, give us the courage to invite a stranger into our home. Give us the ability to meet someone that we might recognize on the street, but we know nothing else about them and probably not even their name. Lord, help us to step outside of our comfort zone and invite those on the margins into our life and at our table. told us in your word that we were once strangers and aliens, separate and apart from a life-saving relationship with you, but you invited us in. In fact, you made us a part of your family. You called us a child of God. And how could we, who have receive such a great gift, not extend the same to someone else. Loving as we have been loved. Forgiving as we have been forgiven. Extending mercy in the same way that we received mercy. And grace in the same way that it has been lavished upon us. May what happens in the life of this church look dramatically different than what is happening in the world around us. Give us the courage to follow you in faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.